Let's face it, 99% of today's podcasts are completely useless. At GM Media, we're all about value exchange. You give us your time, and we give you something that will actually make you smarter, more business savvy, and informed. We talk about marketing, paid media, social, strategy, tactics. I run a media company and have over 20 years of experience that I want to pass along to you. My name is Justin Chase, and this is Gangster Media. Doing a sound check, trying to get sound right, trying to sound good in the afternoon, 4.51 after a long day of work on a Friday. Let's get going. So today I'm coming at you live and uh, from Eastern Long Island. I actually just moved out of my longtime apartment in Lower Manhattan where I've been for the past six years. Obviously, we're in the midst of a terrible pandemic. We think we're about to come out the other side. The good news is that I know you're getting bombarded by that type of news on every single conceivable channel. So that's not what we're here to do. Instead, we're going to give you what you know and love. We're going to give you what the people want. And what the people want today is tacos. Just kidding. It's not tacos. I'm not LeBron James. It's not Taco Tuesday. What you want is your daily dose of marketing and media strategy and insight. And I think I've got a good one for you today because I just presented to a senior leadership team for one of my clients. Obviously, as I said before, we're in the midst of COVID, so all of these leadership summits that tend to occur at numerous points throughout the year, but there's certainly some around this time as the the summer has started and we start to get into brand planning season. We're doing strategic pivots. Uh, It's an opportunity to realign on your strategy. Anyway, this client asked me to come in and to do a TED style, a TED talk style presentation to them. And I'm going to give you the audio. There's slides that, you know, certainly would be helpful from a narrative framework standpoint as you visualize and contextualize. But at the same time, and I'll post this on SlideShare uh, or the site, they're not necessary. Like they're nice to have, but ultimately they're not necessary. So I'd like to take you through the slides uh, or rather the story And the story is based on the idea that, um, or grounded in the idea that they wanted some deeper insights into digital marketing, into digital marketing strategy, the pieces of digital marketing, how they all fit together, all the above. Um, Of course, we're experts here, so that's that's definitely something that uh, we were able to do. So came in, gave the presentation, and I'm going to give you basically that same presentation. So... To get started and to kind of frame things out, as some people, most people, have spent a a good amount of time at home over the past couple of months, maybe a little bit more than normal, and for most of us, a whole lot more than normal. So people are in the midst of this pandemic, going back, and on the weekends, or maybe they typically go out to dinner or 
take the kids to soccer practice. A lot of that's not happening right now, certainly in the part of the country where I live, which is in New York or in the Northeast. And I know this because I have offices all over the country and talk to them, and it is definitely a different dynamic across the states, but we all can agree most of us quarantined for the past three, four months. And during this time, some people learned to cook. Some people learned a new language. Some people learned how to knit. One of the things that I've dug back into is my love for economics. I love business, as you all know, and I love economics. Economics is an unbelievable tool to better understand the economy. And now, of course, with behavioral economics, which is not new, has been around for 50 plus years, there is the opportunity to better understand the rational and with behavioral economics, really irrational decisions people make. So let's start there. One of the things that we know is marketing is all around us. But we also know that economics is all around us. And ultimately, economics, if you peel back the layers of the onion at its kind of core or foundational level, economics is about the management of resources, particularly taking into consideration the management of finite resources, which if we look across the known universe, virtually every resource is a finite resource. Now, in economics, and this is what really interests me, there's action and reaction. There's cause and effect. So example of that, let's look at fiscal policy. Now, for the past several weeks, months, whatever, we've heard so much about the economy. We've heard so much about the Fed and whether or not they're going to lower rates or raise rates, obviously lower because they want to stimulate the economy. And they actually, to, to most people will agree that they have done a reasonably good job uh, of stimulating the economy in certain ways during this pandemic. Um, we definitely could have had worse, although it definitely could have been better. And we'll dig into that in a separate episode. But follow along. Fiscal policy. So Fed's lowering rates. Banks are paying less for borrowed funds. And banks, when they have money, their move is always, 100% of the time, they want to lend that money out. The more money that's on the sidelines, the less money that those banks are able to make. Now, because of the thresholds and rules and regulations implemented, and we can dig into those in another episode, in the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009, banks now need to have a larger stockpile of cash reserves. That threshold needs to be a bit higher just in case something happens, something like a pandemic anyway. Um, so banks are, based on the fact that the Fed has lowered interest rates, Banks are paying less for borrowed funds. They're lending those funds out, and what happens? Capital becomes cheaper. People borrow. If ROI is greater, right, on the borrowed money, then they'd pay in interest, and it goes on and on. But there's also unseen effects, and this, to me, is, is kind of the crux of the analogy. Think about inflation, which will eventually start to rise because of the fact that capital is cheap, people are spending Purchasing power goes down and so on down the line. And I'm dramatically simplifying this, but this, this very much is macroeconomics. To correct this, banks then take money out of circulation. They buy back bonds. They're raising rates. They're doing all this stuff. It's a constant push and it's a pull. And what they want to try to do is maintain equilibrium. So there's always this cause and effect, but there's also the seen and unseen forces of play. And marketing, if you follow along with me, is very much the same way. We want to connect the right message to the right person at the right time. But with this, this increased, we'll call a digital aptitude, with this higher degree of personalization, 
uh, as a result of this the marketing. There comes increased scrutiny of marketing tactics. People now want and expect personalized messages. We had a panel of HCPs earlier this week uh, in a brand planning meeting at the office. And one of the things that these HCPs said, and this was fascinating thing, they said, not only do we like personalization and personalized messaging, but we want a whole lot more of it. But then the question becomes, how personal is too personal? Cause, effect, seen, and unseen. And the unseen here is the increasing degree of unease felt by people when marketing tactics start to bleed into this big brother is watching type of territory. Unseen is the rising backlash against the lack of transparency, uh, the lack of privacy. And when this unrest grows, it's growing and growing, uh, getting stronger, it starts to boil over. The tipping point here is actually real. It's a real-life tipping point. It's GDPR, which is General Data Protection Regulation. It's CCPA. It's uh, Hawaii has new legislature. I think Maine is coming out with something similar. So when you think about marketing, don't just consider the overt ad with Jeff Goldblum as Brad Bellflower from Apartments.com or, or Mr. Peanut or Baby Yoda. Think about all the other unseen forces that are working behind the scenes. They're in the TV we watch. They're in the news we read. They're coming through sonically on the radio and podcasts. We see them live at events. Look at soccer and basketball. They've literally incorporated marketing and marketing messages, not just on the playing fields, but also, as is the case with basketball recently, onto the players' jerseys. And international soccer's been doing this for a long time, but this was a pretty big upheaval in the United States. It was something we were so unused to seeing. A lot of people, many thought it actually bastardized the idea of the game and that these teams were becoming sellouts. But an opportunity is an opportunity, and, and they seized it, you know, um, like it or not. So what's next? Well, one of the other things we know is that marketing creates culture and change. Marketing is one of the greatest drivers of culture. Now, I would point to as an example, if anybody's seen the documentary on Netflix, it came out recently, like a month ago, Last Dance. It's a sports documentary. It's about Jordan's, the last of uh, Jordan's championships his second three-peat with the Chicago Bulls. And it is, whether or not you like sports, it's brilliant. It's quite literally a masterclass in psychology, in relationships, in team building. Really, really fascinating. I, I, would, I couldn't recommend it higher, uh, highly enough. So in this, and it perfectly illustrates this idea, the sneaker industry is literally revolutionized by a single person. That person, of course is Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And if you think about just how great the impact is, think about this. When Jordan signed his contract with Nike, the goal was to generate $3 million in sales by year four. What happened? What happened is they sold $126 million worth of Nike Air Jordans, not in year four, in year one. And Nike at this point in time paled in comparison to Converse and Adidas. Nike was virtually nobody. It's almost hard to think of Nike as a nobody, but they were so not on the map at this point in time. So campaigns like It's Gotta Be the Shoes, Be Like Mike, were some of the biggest and best marketing campaigns of all time, and they still are. Marketing for Nike and Jordan, and it's very much still this way, wasn't about selling the shoe. 
It was about creating a cultural icon that wove itself so deeply into the fabric of society it became the stuff of legend. It was zeitgeist. But unlike zeitgeist, with eventually, which eventually wanes, think of Saved by the Bell or A.C. Slater's haircut, it really hasn't waned. The brand is still valued at over $10 billion. Jordan has personal profits of over a billion himself. And still, I believe, that $1 billion is a bargain for Nike because of all the unseen forces at play here. And let's talk about some of those. Jordan dropped 65 on the Celtics in his classic Air Force Ones, and he actually had to pay a $5,000 fine that night to wear the shoes. Reason is because the league said they didn't mesh with our rules about uniform colors and how sneakers needed to match. The unseen here is there's no way Nike could have envisioned that. Just the fact that Jordan gets fined by the NBA to wear these shoes that look badass, lace them up, go out, drop 65 on the vaunted Celtics was an, just a phenomenon. And the earned media value of this was massive. So much so that they said, Michael, keep wearing the shoes. Don't worry about the fine. We'll foot the bill. And they did. So let's move to a more recent example. There is, it's called Fearless Girl. It's a statue at Bowling Green in Lower Manhattan. It was across from the stock exchange, but eventually it got moved. Now, Fearless Girl was put up in 2017, the day before International Women's Day. The company responsible for this really cool bronze statue was State Street Global Advisors. And the idea was to use this, the statue, as an experiential marketing, we'll call it a stunt, because it really was, at least initially, to promote State Street Global's new index fund made up of gender-diverse companies with female leaders and board members in particular. So they're like, we're going to create a fund. It's going to be focused on companies that have just women leaders or board members. Great idea. Great idea. They also backed this, this uh, experiential marketing stunt with a multi-million dollar ad campaign. And the tagline of the campaign was, Know the Power of Women in Leadership. She capital S, capital H, capital E, makes a difference. She, of course, was the ticker symbol as well. Genius campaign, great tagline, great experiential integration and incorporation. The scene, of course, was that bronze statue of the girl standing fearlessly in the face of the great Wall Street bull, which was installed by a sculptor, Arturo Damatico, in 89. This was two years after Black Monday. The crash was in 87. So the bull although it looks big and kind of mean and badass, actually is a really good thing. It represents bull markets, just holistically speaking, as we all know, the bull is good, the bear is bad, but it represents prosperity, long equity positions, stocks reaching new highs, amassing wealth. And for almost 30 years, this statue of the bull was almost as big as in, in FIDI, which is financial district in lower Manhattan, was almost as big of a tourist attraction as the stock exchange itself. It was emblematic of Wall Street, even though it was moved a few blocks away, as I mentioned. The scene in the example also is women's groups who lauded Fearless Girl, standing her ground. She was a beacon for women everywhere, aspirational, inspiring, all good stuff. But as you can probably guess, there was unseen as well. The unseen was that many, and Demotico, by the way, the sculptor of the bull, agreed with what the statue represented. He disagreed, however, with its placement, staring down the bull almost defiantly. The bull represents the positive climate of the economy, the movement of money. It's not pink or blue or left or right. It's green. 
And that's, that's sort of his point. Even some women's groups actually argued the fact that, um, why is this not a grown woman? Why is it a girl? That's insulting in and of itself. Are all women merely little girls in the face of big business? The idealism was minimized by the slightness and stature of the girl. So there's, there's the scene, but also the unseen. And the unseen in this instance was a really, really big driver of consideration uh, and hype for all intents and purposes. So the point is that Fearless Girl, which started as a marketing ploy to promote a fund, turned into something so much more. The scene, which is the statue, and the unseen, which was the backlash and the scrutiny that it received. However, and despite this negative backlash, Fearless Girl still generated over $10 million in earned media. So the net there is that if you understand it and can harness it, you can also use it to your advantage. And whether or not this was something that State Street actually thought about, only they can tell you. But it certainly is a, a, an interesting study in playing Monday morning quarterback. So moving on. People don't want a brand. They want the way it makes them feel. This is very Seth Godin, you know, definitely something out of his playbook, although he, didn't, he certainly didn't invent it. So where does it leave brands? How do you navigate these seen and unseen forces? I'll add another wrench into the equation. The days of the prom king and queen brands have all but vanished. These are the brands that you wanted a piece of just because of the cachet that they had. It didn't really matter who they were, or what they did, or why they did it, and obviously all that has changed now. But there was a time, believe it or not, when people wanted brands just because of the cachet, and they didn't dig to the extent that they do now. So the cachet of the brand itself today isn't as relevant. People today are less buying a brand, they're more buying the way it makes them feel. You're not buying a Porsche Cayenne because you actually believe you're going to go off-roading. You buy the $90,000 Porsche Cayenne because of the way it makes you feel. And pharma, let's, let's dig into this for a moment. This is the industry that I spend the most time in, has had this problem for years. Look at factors like reimbursement, patient support, treatment paradigms, standard of care for patients and HCPs. All are shading the way that the brand is or treatment is perceived. What feelings does a brand evoke for you and consumer? And with pharma, by the way, this extends not just to emotional feelings, but also physical as well. Traditional marketing is about a feeling like we talked about. It's about a feeling, but it's also about an emotive response as well as about telling a story. That's one of the reasons why Air Jordan became a $10 billion brand and Fearless Girl generated $10 million in earned media. They both found ways to work themselves seamlessly into the cultural narrative in an incredibly time-relevant way. Digital marketing in a vacuum. Let's talk about digital marketing now, and I want to step back in time to around 2011. Everybody client-side in the pharmaceutical industry is talking about digital marketing tactics. They're talking about digital transformation. And by the way, this was in financial services. It was in virtually every other sector. The only other sectors that were slightly ahead of the game at that point in time were consumer packaged goods and maybe retail as well. So digital COEs, which are centers of excellence, that's client speak, start to pop up across uh, numerous sectors and industries. And the bleeding edge at this period of time is social media. It's about 10 years ago. I went to work for a company called MDC, running their health and financial services team. 
One of my clients at the time, one of my biggest clients was Novartis. They were in the midst of launching their MS treatment for Jelenia. Now this was a major, major launch for a number of reasons we'll cover too. The first was that it was the first oral treatment for MS, multiple sclerosis. And that was a big deal because prior to that, every other treatment was an infusion. So going from a, an infusion, which is painful, maybe long, and you have to go somewhere to an infusion center, to taking a pill was game-changing. Secondly, they wanted to use social media, Novartis did, as a major launch tactic. They knew their patients were there on social. They knew they were talking, and not a little, by the way, but a lot. And credit for them for having the, the chutzpah, the guts to dive in. They knew as well that their competitors did not. Pharma is always and has historically been very risk-averse, and they have to be for a number of ways, completely understand that. Not being an apologist, just being real and pragmatic, it's the truth. So social, at the point in time, this point in time, had only been used by a handful of pharma brands. And by a handful, I mean like one or two. And these were mainly for one-way push messaging campaigns. It was like, we're going to take all this content that we created for something else, maybe a, a doctor discussion guide or a website, and we're just going to stick it on social. We're not going to create it, you know, for social as a platform. And it, it didn't, it wasn't anything to write home about. It also wasn't what we call true bilateral dialogue. This is the ability to engage in a two-way conversation. So we were all very excited about the prospect of launching it. We were launching on Facebook, on Twitter, and YouTube. And we ultimately took YouTube down for reasons I won't get into, but it was very, very exhilarating to be kind of at the very, very cutting edge of this thing. Jelenia ultimately became the gold standard for pharma. It was the first time patients could ask questions directly to a brand, and that in and of itself was such a big, uh, such a big deal. When we brought in patient advocates, by the way, which Jelenia Guides, they were called, Jelenia Guide Program, to post on the platform and to engage directly with patients. So, I mean, imagine that, patients engaging with patients. What an idea. And it was. Social just provided this platform to scale what was already going on in real life. And these patients, these guides, were able to effectively tell the brand story through their own. Remember that. That's really important. That's what people are trying to do with influencer marketing right now. And we'll talk more about that in a separate episode. Jelenia eventually won every award under the sun. It's still looked at as one of the best-in-class examples of social pharma. Long story short, I leave MDC with the blueprint to create the ultimate social agency for pharma. Everyone wanted the secret, and I had it. I literally cracked social for pharma. So... I started a company, my own company, Hypertonic. I turned it into a multi-million dollar agency in, in less than three years. But there was a problem. There's always a problem. <laughs> we could tell stories and we could generate emotive responses. We could impact health culture. We were able to do everything we just discussed. Everything we just discussed with traditional marketing, telling a story, creating cultural impact, time relevance. And because it was digital, we had the ability to scale rapidly. We could optimize much more nimbly than we ever had before. But what we couldn't do was show impact on meaningful ROI, like new patient leads, like script lift. In other industries, it's uh, conversions, it's sales. You need to be able to do that if you really, really want to create a campaign that's going to have sustainability. What we had were vanity metrics galore. 
And with digital campaigns, that tends not to be the problem. You're typically, you know, high on vanity metrics. But what you're short on, unless you do the campaign properly and set it up, I'm going to tell you, the problem is that we were very, very siloed. And we had these vanity metrics, but they existed in a bubble. We existed in a bubble, and there was a lot of irrelevant stuff going on. The AOR didn't want to play nice. That's the agency of record. They often thought they could do social, but then they tried and they failed. They didn't incorporate us. All kinds of issues. We could get the key social metrics, the likes, the shares, share of voice, engagement, views, clicks. But because we were siloed, as I just mentioned, and disconnected from the larger marketing plan, the tangible value was limited. It was at least hard to prove out. So that's when I had this epiphany moment. Unless we could integrate, we were going to fail. And ultimately, I ended up unloading the company and a whole bunch of stuff happened, but I did what any respectable business owner would do, any smart business owner. And I got out of a business that I knew was ultimately going to fail. At that point in time, and not just in pharma, by the way, there was this dearth of these standalone social agencies. And many of them were really great shops. They produced great social content. They were engaging. They told unbelievable stories, the culture, everything. But one by one, like us, they too either sold or evolved into more full-service shops. The reason was that they came to the same conclusion that social can't produce sustainable ROI unless it's connected to the rest of the marketing plan and strategy. This is where multi-channel comes in. Multi-channel marketing, otherwise known as MCM, sometimes modern marketing, whatever, multi-channel marketing connects traditional to digital. Digital marketing on its own, on a channel like social, can only do so much and will always be limited if it's not connected to a multi-channel experience. And of course, things today are definitely changing. People want to connect on social more so than other channels, but there almost always needs to be ancillary channels surrounding that one channel because it's very, very rare that 100% of your target is 100% on just one channel, particularly if you're a bigger brand. Traditional marketing is about creating a feeling, inspiring culture. Digital marketing is about doing many of these same things, but at scale. The ability to optimize, to be nimble. With social, right, you can engage directly with real people. And you can do this offline too, by the way. Think about experiential marketing, the Fearless Girl uh, campaign that we talked about. But it's not nearly at the scale of social. Historically, if you wanted to optimize a print campaign, you had to launch it, you had to test it, you had to wait for months to get the results. You had to go back to the drawing board, then on creative. If you want to optimize a search campaign, and of course, depends on how complex that optimization is, you can literally do it in hours. The real boon, and what I want to focus on today, is this multi-channel marketing, this, this conduit, the connective tissue that connects the digital to the traditional to the new omni-channel, modern marketing, all of it. You're creating with multi-channel unique dynamic experiences across channels and platforms. And that is everything. It's what consumers expect. And it's what savvy marketers have been striving for for decades. So one of the examples I want to give this very, very kind of minor mini case study is an Uber. Now Uber, I don't know, rewind five, six, seven years ago, first identifies me as a customer. And we'll talk more about how they did this in a minute. And they send me an email. They then, after this first email, it's their first touch point with me is this email. They give me a voucher for a free ride to incentivize me. 
right? So eventually I'm like, okay, I'll try it. I end up doing the free ride. It's a good experience. And then right after that, they ask me if I want to sign up. And then I do sign up. But instead of getting that welcome email again, I get a refer a friend email. Then I refer a friend. And instead of getting a, a duplicative email again, I instead get $5 for referring that friend. And they message me at this point, not in the email again, or not in an email again, because they know how much I'm using the app. And they know that I'm rating the drivers. And they know I'm rating them highly. So they ask me via text or in-app interstitial to rate them in the app store. So I did that. And instead of getting the rate me again message, I got messages about various fare discounts and insights into when to ride for the least amount of traffic. And it goes on and on and on. But the point is that they understood me their segment, their target. They understood where I was in the journey. They understood the channels I was interacting and engaging on in app, email, maybe social. And they tailored that message to me in the right channel where they knew I was at the right time with the right mindset. So let's talk about that. The five core tenets of MCM. The first is know your segment. Uber didn't just create this, this, general awareness campaign with a blanket marketing kind of strategy. They most likely bought lists from other similar brands that they believed their target segments were already engaging with or purchasing from. And particularly to start, they've changed their pricing model a number of times. But Uber, if you remember, when they started, at least, they were about 25% on average more expensive than a New York City cab. And then when Uber Black comes out, they were about 50% more expensive. The thing is, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because they knew their target segments so well. They knew they were urban city dwellers who valued time, cleanliness, experience over price. And that's the first key insight for you. Know your segment. The great thing about not just digital but MCM segments is that you can layer in so much information. Things like, behavior, what they're doing online, what sites did they visit, what content did they engage with, what apps did they download. There's geo-targeting, where'd they go, what emails did they read. And you can also layer in offline data like CRM, um, Experion data gives insights into financial health, uh, Catalina point of sale, what stores do they shop at. We can get Kroger data now, what did they buy at the supermarket. The depth and breadth of this data that you can layer into your segments is astounding attitudinal, you know, how do they feel about something? What are they thinking at certain moments through social graph data? What are their likes, their dislikes? What bands are they listening to? It's incredible. But remember, the seen and the unseen, you can use it and you should use it, but only to an extent. You don't want to be creepy. You don't want to be big brother. MCM affords the ability to construct these highly sophisticated segments, then track those segments across channels. And that's key. That's the journey, the consumer journey, your patient journey, your HCP journey. As we know, consumers are never just on one channel. This is what I was talking about before. This is why connecting those channels through MCM is so critical. The expectation now from consumers is that the brand experience extends to any and all channels. The days where brands could have a really great website but a crappy social experience or a really great uh, print and TV campaign, but their digital really kind of sucked. That cannot happen anymore. Everything is an extension of your brand, down to your URL, down to the hashtags that you're using. I can't stress that enough. What next? 
timing. Timing is everything. Think about this, this saying, and how often do you hear this in life? Timing is everything. It's true in your career. It's true in sports. It's true in your love life. And it's no less true in digital marketing. The reason why you get an ad on Facebook in the right rail for those new Cole Haan shoes right after you just looked at the new pinch penny loafers that are so cute is because Cole Haan knows you're in a buyer's mindset. When people walk into a mall, they're in a buyer's mindset 89% of the time, except maybe when they're just power walking or need an escape from COVID isolationism. Through incredibly adept MCM, it's easier now than ever to understand when the right time to connect is. You don't want to be serving ads for your product when someone's at work at their law firm doing research on land rezoning laws in Central Islip. It's just not relevant to them at that point in time. That's not what they're thinking about. You want to hit them when they get home. They're sitting on the couch. Maybe they have an adult beverage or um, Starbucks is open again and they've got the mocha frappuccino going on, Right. They're watching TV, but barely because instead they've got the second screen going. This is where they're doing the bulk of their shopping. Or maybe it's not. These sets of patterns of behaviors are constantly changing now. That's one of the things that modern markets marketers need to be attuned to is that the behavior of people, and we always thought we could using all the data and insights I've just been talking about, that we can kind of peg their behavior, that we can start to really understand it. And we can, but one of the biggest insights is that people's behavior is highly irrational, right? So this is where MCM is even more important for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact you've got a supercomputer in your pocket, mobile speeds are going up, uh, mobile data costs are going down, basically means you have all the information in the world literally whenever you want it. But that's the great thing about MCM. We can plan for that. We can plan for this, uh, these irrational moments. We can factor those in. We then need to align the message to the journey. How do we plan for this? How do we strategize for this? When we get the timing right, we also get the message right. And as important as this, this masterfully crafted content is, believe it or not, sometimes the medium is the message. In other words, just knowing the right platform to connect on can be, at times, tantamount to success. Look at this example from Domino's. And I say look at this, but really I'm going to paint the picture for you with words. So Domino's, they first architected their segment. That segment is, it's a dude's on game day. You know, we wheel out a pizza. Or it's the weird neighbor from next door. Or it's Bane who just wants to kill some pepperoni. So they know the dude, the neighbor, and Bane all want to buy some pizza on game day. It's Sunday afternoon. It's giant. Saquon just bust loose for a touchdown, jumping up and down. We're going out of our seat. They're all going wild. All of a sudden, they get hungry. And Domino's knows that when their team has just scored or is winning, they're 48% more likely to order a pizza from the app. But they also know they don't want to waste time ordering. So they hit them, their target segment, right after the score with a message. Do you want two medium, two-topping pizzas for $12.99? Uh, yeah, I do. So then, in a brilliant move, they allow, they allow the, the dude to text an emoji back, and bam, his pizza is ordered. So they're understanding the segment, 
They're hitting them at the right time. They're nailing the landing with perfect content. And the content, by the way, doesn't need to be an email. It doesn't need to be display banner content. It literally could be as simple as an emoji, right? The medium is the message. And in this instance, that's very much the truth. But then in this whole MCM equation, you need to drive the desired action. And this, for all intents and purposes, is where we were falling down at hypertonic. This is kind of where things get really interesting here. So, and I'll even go back to that hypertonic example. Social was great with the vanity metrics, but we couldn't drive a meaningful performance-based metric. And this is where multi-channel comes in. Once you have your segment at the right time with the right message, you need to get them at the right point in their journey. You need to either get them there or hit them there. You don't send the welcome message out to your target after they've made 10 purchases. You need to know where they are in their journey so that you can engage them with that right message and understand what that next best action is that you want them to take. In pharma, we talk about this idea, this next best action idea for reps, like these are pharmaceutical sales reps who go in office to see the doctor, and we work with them to try to determine based on the data, the knowledge, the information that we have, after they call on the doctor, they then need to follow up with an email or provide additional information or come back with a sample. There are all these things that we can help them understand and unpack because they have so many decisions to make. So what is the next best action? And there's the same thing for uh, HCPs. We can try to do this in the EHR, and we are, which is the electronic health record. The thing is, there's also next best action for consumers. In the Uber example, it was after I've ridden and built loyalty. In order to keep that loyalty up, the next best action was, I want to get him, this guy who's my segment or this woman, uh, to refer a friend. At the end of the day, sure, she's getting a coupon, but what really is going on is that she's doing lead gen for the brand. She's getting $5 to do it. I guess you could argue she's getting paid to do it. But honestly, that $5 for a lead is the greatest deal in the world for Uber. Let's talk about performance marketing for a second. What Uber is calculating is that if the lead, the cost of the lead is $5, but the value of the lead, and they don't look at value for a day or a week or a month, they look at what's called LTV or lifetime value, exceeds $5, and usually you want it to be, you know, like 25, maybe 50% of your total uh, lifetime value. But it's much more than that. Because lifetime value for me, friends, isn't $5. And let me give you a, a, a guess. It's not $500 either. I don't think it's $5,000 either. I probably over my lifetime, as many, many people living in a city will do, will spend 50 75, I don't know, maybe $100,000 on Uber because the prices just get crazier and crazier. Anyway, the point is that those desired actions, those next best actions could be anything. They could at the top of the funnel be watch a video to learn more, uh, to get educated. Um, once I'm interested, it might be sign up to receive emails to progress me further down funnel, to build up interest, purchase intent. Then it might be do a demo or a trial. Then as I'm progressing even further down funnel, it's sharing a link because I like it. I want to recommend it. And then I really want to recommend it. I continue to purchase. I engage with the brand. I write a review. They ask me to write a review. That's the action they're asking me to take. Or maybe the action they're asking me to take is to rate them on Yelp. 
Or maybe I've gone so far down the rabbit hole with this brand that I'm on social media talking about them incessantly, and they say, hey, join our group for power users. So the move, the action is to join the group, and they give me exclusive content and behind-the-scenes stuff and free trials and products before they come out in real life. Some of these actions aren't feasible for the sector that you're in. Fine, totally understand that. But there always will be actions that you want the end user to take. That's why a CTA is called a CTA, a call to action. You want people to take an action uh, at behest of your brand, because of your brand. Lastly, you need to target, retarget, attribute, and optimize. So getting down to the wire here, all right? Hang in there. Hang in there with me. You've developed your segments. You've refined them until you feel like you've got a really good idea of who your target segments are. And by the way, when you do things like A-B message testing, which we'll talk about in a, in a future episode, they're called tests because you're always testing. It's never done. People's behaviors, their mindsets, everything is always changing. Nothing is ever static. So you're always testing, right? And that's why optimization is so important. So you've gotten your targets to what you believe is a really good place. With MCM, you can do what's called lookalike modeling. And this basically means that you're taking a sample of your best targets and you're literally placing a mirror in front of them to find other people who have similar behaviors, attitudes, and affinities. And the best part is that you think about platforms, the Googles of the world and Facebook, they're now allowing you to leverage their AI to do this type of thing. They're bubbling up new targets for you based on what criteria you are underscoring in your models, you marketer are underscoring. So they're taking your criteria and they're mirroring it. That's lookalike modeling. And by the way, that's very, very high level. As I said, with a number of things we'll dig in in future episodes. Finally, and this is the holy grail, there's attribution. Attribution is the ability to look across channels that you're marketing to in your MCM plan and determine which one of those channels is doing best. And it's a model, which means it's directional. It's not 100% accurate. There are sectors like CPG that have been doing attribution for years, retail the same. They've really nailed this. But other sectors like pharma, FinServ is doing better now. But believe me when I say everybody's getting there. This, this, in this multi-channel ecosystem is what everybody's aspiring to do. So people are getting there. Google for years has used what was called a last touch attribution model, which meant the last channel a customer engages with. So for example, they go from search, from Google search to purchase or Bing to purchase. They go from Facebook to purchase. That last channel, irregardless of the TV spot that they watched, the radio ad that they heard, the email that they got, the direct mail piece that they tore off the little business reply card for and got more information on, none of that counts. It's just the last channel that they interacted and engaged with. That last channel in this scenario, this last touch model, would get 100% of the credit. In today's reality, obviously, that's hardly fair. User journeys are highly nuanced, they're complex. Many channels almost always have some type of impact on a consumer's decision. There's also timing. So if you saw a TV spot and then purchased the next day, it's fair to say that TV spot had some impact on your decision. Similarly, if you go to a site, if you search, and on and on and on, you know, a week prior. But what if you searched, did a really intensive search for a particular product or treatment or therapy or, or a new bank, and then you 
forgot about it for a month or two. Two months later, you then go to purchase. That purchase decision is all based on the research you did two months earlier. Is that taken into consideration? And that's one of the things that marketers are still trying to figure out. Usually, if it's past 30 days, it may not be taken into consideration, but it depends on the model. The point, though, is that new models are emerging. New models are emerging to take into account more of the, the rise of these MCM-centric strategies. So there's now many different forms of attribution. What you need to know, though, and I want you to remember, is that multi-touch takes into account all the different channels, or at least most of the different channels a person is interacting with. It's also looking at the impact that those channels have on the end user's decision and journey pathway by assigning a certain point value to each interaction. So if you break it down to try to really get at what's happening, we're peeling back the layers of the onion here in this model. It's powered by a very sophisticated cookies, and we'll talk about those and cookieless future in a future episode. That is little bits of code that uh, help to identify an end user, usually embedded in the browser, yada, yada. Cookies, it's AI, it's machine learning, it's algorithms. These technologies are all trying to take into consideration the cause, the effect, the seen, and the unseen. So MCM, multi-channel marketing, and attribution models allow us to understand not just how and when and where to engage, but also the best way to engage in order to maximize every single dollar of your investment. And that's why MCM is so important.